Good morning, family. Whether you are dialing in through YouTube, Facebook, or Impact Radio, we are so happy you've joined us. And trust, today's service will encourage and challenge you as we get to know the great I am even more deeply. We've started meeting on site again, which is exciting, with the prescribed number of people. And while some of the on site elements will be included in our online service, other elements will still be recorded in advance. In August, we focused on Faith Promise, a fund to which our church community gives directed towards bringing real change across the street and across the globe. Stay tuned after the service for an update of how much you have pledged so far. Today, we also share in communion together. If you haven't already done so, please get your elements ready. We are about to worship together now. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new one. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground in the crushing. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil, I now surrender. You are breaking new ground. So I heal to you. Into your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me your vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here. Bring you one out of yes. Oh, yes, Lord. Yes, bring you one, you one, you one, Lord, out of us. In the crushing, in the pressing, yes, you are made. breaking new ground so I yield to you 
this morning is on the making of the new wine, on the ground that he, we have surrendered, that he is plowing. And I wonder as we sing this again, if you'll begin to ask the Lord, out of the crushing, out of the pressing, what is the new wine? Where are the buds of hope? Where is he speaking life into your circumstances, into our corporate circumstances? So Etienne, could we sing that again? And could we have that? as our focus, the, the new wine, the new freedom, the new liberty that he is bringing. Make me your vessel, make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be. Make me a vessel, make me your vessel, Make me an offering, make me whatever you want me to be.
for your presence. Just where you stand, wherever you are, where you're seated today, just let's just acknowledge the Lord's presence together. Because where there's unity, God commands His blessing. And though there may be fewer of us today, we, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. All of heaven's congregation is here right now. You inhabit our praises, Lord. Presence, Lord. 
Lord, we say it's such a privilege for us to have the Holy Spirit with us. Every day, every moment, everything we face, that you are with us, Holy Spirit. And uh, we rely on you for everything and for your guidance, for your leading, to help us just to orientate our lives according to your will and your patterns at this time. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for your faithfulness. We, we love you. Thank you for the service that we can be together today and that you continue to speak to us as we go into the word just now in Jesus name. Amen. So great to have you with us this morning and uh, it's time to take up the offering and won't you get ready whatever you've purposed in your heart to give. I know it's a time where most of us give our tithes and it's such a privilege and an honor to serve a community like this and be part of a community like this that is so faithful and so generous and I really was just want to say thank you so much for staying faithful in your giving. And uh, may you even in this time also give as the Lord has led you and as you have purposed in your heart. So make use of the snap scan and uh, of the bank account details as they appear on the screen right now. Thank you for giving. Well, today we want to have communion together. Isn't it an amazing privilege for us that even while we separated, socially distant, we can be united around the body of the Lord Jesus that was given for us so that we could have his presence with us every day, everywhere we go, that, that our sins have been washed away and we have been made whole by the body of Christ. So I trust that you've got your elements ready and uh, we're just going to share them together. And I have a wafer, I don't know what you have, probably have bread or something else at home, but this represents for us the body of Christ, the body that was given so that we could become part of his body. We are the body of Christ now, the church. And he is the head of the body. Uh, but he gave his body. His body was broken for us. And so that we could be restored back into our rightful place as sons and daughters of God. So thank you, Lord, for your body. Thank you that you died on that cross. That you went through that terrible, terrible experience. So that we could become part of you and experience the wonder and the joy of being part of your family and being in your body as the body of Christ. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your body in Jesus' name. And then we have this cup that we drink, which is the symbol of the blood of Christ that was poured out so that our sins could be washed away. And we recognize, each of us, that I was born in sin and I have sinned. But... Isn't it so great that the body of Christ, ach, the blood of Christ, is the complete answer to all my sin, that every sin is washed away and taken care of. And uh, so let's get ready to partake of this cup. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, your one and only beloved son, so that he could die on the cross for us and so that his blood could be spilt and poured out and be the answer to us and our sin so that we could be washed clean and become pure, become holy, become righteous in you 
because of the blood of Christ. And therefore, we thank you, Jesus, as we remember your sacrifice for us and your blood that was poured out for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for sharing with me the communion today. And uh, we're going to go into the word right now. And I trust that we're going to have a great time as we're going to talk more about who Jesus is in our lives. May your family be very blessed. Well, it's such a privilege to share the word with you again today. And I must say, again, I'm just loving this I Am series. I'm learning a lot. It means a lot to me just what I'm uh, uncovering and meditating on in the scripture. And I trust in your home and just where you are joining us right now that you're ready to receive the word. And won't you open your heart, open your spirit to hear what the Lord is saying to us today. Today we're talking about I am the light of the world. One of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the light of the world. And uh, for this portion of scripture, uh, we're actually focusing on John 8. Um, but in totality, John 7, 8, and 9 becomes the really important portions of Scripture. So have your Bible with you, and let's be ready to dive into this and uh, just talk about Jesus being the light of the world. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where it's pitch, pitch dark. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. Um, I remember once we went to, uh, I think it's called the Museum of Justice in the UK, and um, they took us into this prison dungeons area and they showed sort of 18th century justice and they did a great job um, and then one of the things they did is they took you into like a, the the solitary confinement cell which was way underground and then they put you in there as a group and then they closed the door and switched off the lights and it is pitch dark to you know that kind of darkness which immediately disorients you and the fear starts rising up in you and, and you're just uncertain. And fortunately, they don't keep it long enough that you really start feeling it. But just as you feel the panic coming up, they switch the lights on. And I can remember standing there. I just held Natasha's hand and you just stand dead still and you just wait for that light to come on. What a difference light makes when it's completely dark. Even the smallest little light just brings such relief and such hope and, 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 and just freedom to us when light comes into the darkness and Jesus says I am the light of the world but to really understand what he's saying and the depth of what he's communicating to us we we again have to go into the context and the surrounding scriptures and talk about what was happening John 7 8 and 9 is the is John writing to us and capturing for us events that took place around the the Feast of Tabernacles. Now the Feast of Tabernacles is in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, our calendar, generally sort of mid-September to mid-October time of the year. So, and it's this eight-day feast, which is the great feast where people come together from all over. All the Jews come together. The, Jerusalem is filled with people. There's a buzz. There's excitement. People are, are in a party sort of kind of festival kind of mood. And there's lots happening as they gather. And to celebrate and to remember how the Lord cared for their ancestors during the time of the exodus in the, in the desert time. And uh, so there's, there's these events that are going on at the temple. Um, there's uh, the celebration feasts, festivals that they're doing, food that they're eating. There's even people walking around the city uh, to remember what happened with Jericho. There's uh, all sorts of wonderful things that goes on during that time of the year. And uh, this is the time where, where we're reading of today, where Jesus makes the statement that that he is the light of the world. It's in the midst of that feast. But not only was it the time of the feast here, particularly, 
It was also a difficult time for Jesus, actually a dangerous time. In, in John 7, 8, and 9, we read this portion where the Pharisees were intent on killing Jesus. They were looking for him, and they were looking to charge him and find charges against him so that they could kill him and get rid of him. He was upsetting uh, the, them by challenging the status quo, by uh, taking power from them as religious leaders, and um, they were full of fear of what he's going to do and what he's going to lead to and thinking that he's leading the people astray, that he's a heretic and that the only way that they can deal with him is they have to, to kill him. So it's in this festival environment where John 7, 8 and 9 is written, but it's also in this context of Jesus actually you know, being concerned for his life and the Pharisees are intent on wanting to, to kill him and to harm him. Um, now, let me just pause for a moment before I go into the rest of it. And, and just to say that we know from Scripture that the Scripture tells us the world is in darkness. That because of what happened in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man into sin, it plunged the world into darkness. But we have even a greater challenge than just the fact that the world is in darkness. The problem is also not just that the world is in darkness, but that men have become blind to the light. You see, if there's darkness, like the story where I just told you, when you're in a dungeon like that, it's dark. But when somebody switches on the light, everything changes. But if you're blind, somebody can switch on the light, it doesn't change. You're still in darkness. And so the condition of the world we are in today, we must be clear, is that it is not only that the world is dark, but it is that men have become blind. Men, even if the light goes on, men cannot see the light. Men have become those that are oblivious to the light. Um, in John 3 verse 19, the scripture says, People love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. We live in days, and, and you know, since the days of sin has become part of the, the world from Adam and Eve, that we live in a place where men love the darkness. So men run away from the light. Men don't want to see the light, and it's that which makes them blind. So when Jesus comes, and here he's starting to talk about being the light, he's also talking about healing us from our blindness, not just bringing the light into the world. Because when Jesus came into the world, as we see in these stories, we'll see unfold. When Jesus came into the world, the light came with him, but yet people still didn't see him. Yet people still didn't recognize the light. So not only does Jesus need to heal us from, our, uh, from the darkness, bring light into the darkness, but he has to heal us from our blindness. Remember that great quote of C.S. Lewis. I'm sure you've read this quote or, or heard it somewhere before. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that's Jesus, the light of the world. He doesn't just come and shine light so that we can, we can see him, but through him we see everything else. And, and I just want to put that thought in your mind as we go through this portion of Scripture. So I'm going to start reading with John 7 verse 1, and, uh, and then we're going to work our way through quite a bit of Scripture. So just stay with me. John 7, we read, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public figure who wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And, and remember, I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, 
What John is capturing for us is how Jesus is bringing his credentials to the people, showing them that he is Messiah, the Son of God. And, and here, the, everybody's going up to the festival, but Jesus says, I'm not going up to the festival, because he knew they were looking to kill him. So the scripture carries on and it tells us in verse 6, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. The blindness, the, the, the darkness. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. After, however, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So can you, can you pick up the environment that's going on here? Jesus says first, he's not going because he doesn't want to go with the posse. He doesn't want to go with his entourage because then everybody will see him. He'll be very visible. So he sends his brothers, his family, the disciples off on their own. He secretly comes in as a one guy, you know, probably wearing something over his head that people don't recognize him. And he's just slipping through the, the crowd, observing what's going on at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, yet the crowd is talking about him. People are looking for him. The Pharisees are looking for him because they, they want to find a charge against him. And they want to kill him. So it's again, it's this festive atmosphere, lots of people, lots of noise. There's lots going on. It's the busiest time of the year in Jerusalem. Jesus is being looked for. They want to kill him. He's quietly just, you know, sort of working through the crowd and, and staying in the area. So there's lots of events that took place in the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, many of the events that were going on during that time that they were celebrating were actually symbols or foreshadows of the Messiah. They were prophecies. They were actions that they were doing that were reminding them of something of the past, but also telling them about this Messiah to come. Um, it was therefore that they had so much celebration and joyfulness. They were celebrating the harvest that, that they've just received, but also more than that, celebrating who God is and God's faithfulness to them. During the week of festival, for instance, many people lived in booths that were little, little, um, uh, sort of little huts that they made from branches on the roofs of their houses, and they would stay there for the week. And that was to remind them that they, they, their ancestors didn't have a, a permanent dwelling, and how God has now made for them a permanent dwelling, and, and things like that they were celebrating. They were singing and dancing, torch parades. And as I said, people marching around the city, it was a, it was a fantastic time, a lot of celebration going on. Each morning during this week, uh, the, the, some priest would carry water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out on the west side of the brazen altar in the temple court. This reminded the people how God had provided for their ancestors during the difficult journey through Canaan. This ritual should also have reminded them of the words of Isaiah who said, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Remember, as I said now, so it reminded them these symbols, these acts like this, pouring out the water, reminded them of what happened in the desert, but also was a foreshadowing of the salvation that was to come in the Messiah. So at some point we read in John 7 verse 37, this probably just happened. It was the outpouring of this water that was going on in one particular day. 
But Jesus can't help himself. Remember, he's quietly going about, doesn't want to draw attention. But in John 7, verse 37, it says the following. On the last day and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. He's, he's, he's sort of bursting forth and he says, Listen, guys, I, I want, can you not see that this that you are experiencing in the Feast of Tabernacles, so much of this is about me. I'm here. Why are you celebrating the, the party, the advert, but you're not coming to me, the one of whom it all speaks? The, this water that is being poured out is a prophecy. It's a prophetic act that talks about the Messiah. But I'm here. I'm in your midst. Notice, here I am. And that's where Jesus was getting frustrated and, and he was being stirred and seeing so clearly the blindness of the people. They were so caught in their rituals and in their traditions and so caught in the Feast of Tabernacles and the, and the whole thing that was going on, they didn't notice him. The very reason for the feast. The one about whom the feast is. It's like having a, a party for a guest of honor. And when the guest of honor arrives, nobody pays attention to the guest. Everybody carries on. And then the guest starts realizing, look, they were just using me as an excuse for a party. It's not really about me. It's about them wanting to have a party. It was, it was almost that sense of lots of religion and excitement. And, and, but they were caught in their dead religion. Not coming to the giver of life, the one of whom it was all about. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan made that famous statement where he said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. These people were caught in their traditionalism. Not ready, not prepared, not seeing that this was a transition moment. They had to move from where they were to adjust to a new reality, and that reality is the Messiah had come. I mean, we all know about how difficult it is to transition right now. With COVID-19 and lockdown life and levels and everything, we've, this whole year has been a time of transitioning, of moving from one level to the next, and, and, and some restrictions to and adapting. And right now, you know, we're moving from having lived in our houses and all being so separated from one another, and now we, we're coming out, but COVID-19 is still there, so, we, so we, we're trying to figure out how do we live. And, but we have to adjust to a new reality. These people were confronted with something even more deeper than that. They had to adjust to a new reality. Jesus has come. He is in the midst of them. Why would you pour out the water but not come to the one who is the water? And this is the challenge that Jesus was facing with this crowd. In John 8, then I'm going to drop down. John 8 verse 12. Jesus Having experienced all of this, their traditionalism, they, they doing the party, but not really interested in him, slips away out of the hubbub of the crowd. And he sort of, you can almost see him go into the streets where it's a bit more quiet with the people that are not so caught up in the religious festivals. And he's, 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 he's frustrated, disappointed with what's going on in the religious festival. And there he's just in the street. But the Pharisees go looking for him and they've set a trap for him. And it's in the midst of this where he makes this statement that our sermon is about today. In John 8 verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, Jesus said this probably connected to one of the events that was taking place in the festival of, of the, 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 the Passover, of the uh, 
<laughs> you, you, the festival that they were going through, the great festival. One of the things that they were doing during that time is at night during, during that week, the priests lit four large candelabra and in the court of the women. And uh, they would put them up and the glow from those lights would, light, would, would be seen all over the city. And uh, those lamps were there to represent the reminder for them of how God was their pillar of fire during the darkness of the desert. But again, it was also to tell them about the Messiah, the light of the world that would come. In, in Exodus 3, 13, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. In Psalm 27, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord. Sorry, that's uh, Isaiah 60. The previous one was Isaiah, Psalm 119. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The, there was this hope for the light to come. And so they were, again, they were doing these ceremonies that were talking about the light, but not recognizing the light. So Jesus goes out, and he's somewhere in the street, and then he says this. But in the context of the Pharisees that were wanting to trap, entrap him, and wanting to, to catch him so that they could kill him and destroy him. What John does beautifully in his writings of this story, and how he captures these moments. Remember, John selects events and miracles for specific reasons, because He's capturing what Jesus is communicating to us. What John does so beautifully when he captures this event that we're going to read about right now is he, is he uses a story that tells us something about what Jesus is going through, where Jesus actually identifies with somebody else in that context, and that's that woman that was caught in adultery. So the way John writes the story of the woman caught in adultery is to show us a close encounter of the light of the world with a person in darkness. But also to show us she represents something of what Jesus himself is also going through. And, and that's what I want to share with me with you. So they're having a close encounter. Jesus has a close encounter with this woman and the Pharisees around her. But he's doing that so that he could identify with her or she identifies with him. And also that he could shine light into that situation. It's almost like he says to the, the festival, you guys are so caught up, you're so blind, you're not going to see the light. So let me go in the street and see if I can shine the light on somebody that may possibly not be so blind. And then he gets caught in this situation. In John 8 verse 3 we read, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it is commanded, uh, commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? They're setting a trap for him. They're saying, this is what the law says. If Jesus goes against the law, then they can hold him guilty for that. They were using this question as a trap, verse 6, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote to the, on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first and only until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is an amazing story. That if you understand the context, the language of the time, you pick up on the nuance of what Jesus is doing and what's happening in this situation. So they bring this woman. Now the Jewish law stated this, 
that if somebody's caught in adultery, you have to, you cannot be caught in adultery on your own. This woman wasn't in adultery because she was on her own. She was with somebody. The law stated that both the man and the woman had to be brought to the court. Both had to be charged, and if found guilty, both had to be stoned. So right there, we can see the Pharisees and the scribes here, they're not really concerned about the law. They're not really concerned about right or wrong or morality. They're setting Jesus up. They're creating a situation just to trap Jesus. And they prepared to sacrifice this woman. They prepared to at least embarrass her, but probably stone her and kill her just to prove a point. So they've got no care for this woman. They twisting the law, making it suit their purposes so that they can trap Jesus because they want to get rid of Jesus. So they break the law themselves. They come and they bring this woman on her own and, uh, and, they, and they start goading Jesus. Now, please, this is, a, this is a busy street. This is Jesus in the midst of a crowd. This is like a riot that's going on. This is like events we see in our days when, you know, that we saw now during, in America, for instance, when, when the police killed uh, Floyd and you see the, the riots happening and people are shouting in the streets. This is that kind of event. Jesus is in the midst of something. The crowds are saying there's, there's a law that needs to be upheld. There's justice. There's, there's tradition here that needs to be kept and, and at all cost. But they're bending it to their purposes. So they confront Jesus. Now, the scripture tells us, John writes and he says, Jesus stoops down and begins to write in the ground. I know there's been many sermons about what did he write. It's not what he wrote that's important. It's his body language that's important. The, John didn't tell us what he wrote because I don't think it mattered. It wasn't about what he was writing. It was the position Jesus was assuming. Have you ever been in a space where somebody's talking to you and you sit there doodling away like you're not half paying attention. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. He, he didn't have a piece of paper and a pen or an iPad or something. So he stooped into the ground and he was just doodling, doodling on the ground, just writing stuff. If it was important for us to know, we would have known. And we can't have conjecture about what he wrote. He was just writing in the ground, almost letting them carry on. Letting them shout and scream and performing and throwing accusations at him and, and at the woman. And he was just like letting, letting them speak until they finished speaking. He was allowing them, giving them rope to hang themselves. He was giving them space to reveal the blindness of their hearts. He was just doodling. And then at some point when the crowd, you know, had sort of now said what they wanted to say, he stood up straight and then he said that, that fantastic Great statement where he says, um, oh, sorry, in, in verse 7, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw the stone at her. Now, we must understand what that verse means in its context. The law stated also not only that if the man and the woman was caught in adultery, both of them is brought before the, if they found guilty, both has to be stoned. The law stated in uh, Deuteronomy um, uh, in verse, uh, I'll find it just now. In Deuteronomy, the law states that the first stone is to be thrown by the first witness that caught them in the act of adultery. The first person that came upon them, that found them in this act of adultery, was to throw the first stone. And then the others would join in and throw the subsequent stones. That first person had to be without sin, meaning they had to have 
no malice in their hearts. They weren't setting these people up and, uh, and wanting to just use this as an occasion to get even with somebody. And therefore, uh, they, they didn't have malice and they weren't, they weren't allowed to lie. So when Jesus says, let him who is without first sin, without sin, cast the first stone, he's saying, who is the first witness here that saw this woman in adultery? that doesn't have malice in their heart and is not lying but speaking the truth about the situation, let that person step forward now and throw the first stone. Obviously, there wasn't such a person because they were setting this whole thing up. And it's at that point, Jesus, like a skilled lawyer, asks one question, makes one statement, and their whole case falls apart. Their whole case is wiped off the table because they couldn't produce what they were saying. And then in a very ceremonial way, this John is careful to write, tell us that the elders left first. That tells you this wasn't just a mob event. This was an organized event. There was protocol in this event. They were reenacting a legal sit, uh, 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 situation, like a court of law. And Jesus had now stood up for this woman and, and didn't find her innocent, but proved them to be guilty of usurping the law and using it for their purposes. And it's at that point when they, they revealed the, 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 the sin, the ugliness of their hearts, that they drop the stones and they walk away. And then Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. What we must understand here is where there's sin involved, there's the legal consequences of sin and there's the moral consequences of sin. Jesus, in a sense here, stands and says there's no legal case against you because these people did not follow the protocols of the law. You have been legally found not guilty because of a process that wasn't followed properly. But morally, you are guilty. That's why he says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. So Jesus didn't excuse her sin. Jesus didn't say, I, your sin doesn't matter. No, not at all. He says it matters. You are sin. You, you are held in sin. And that's what you have to understand. You can live your life according to some legal law, or you can live your life according to God's law. Are you going to, just because you found legally not guilty, does that mean you're okay? Does that mean you're fine? No, he's saying, I'm the light of the world because I shine the light on the hearts of man that transforms and changes men. I do not just use the law. And, and he's saying, he's showing to us how blind we are because we are so blinded to our own desires and our own loving of what we're doing that we'll even take the law and bend it to serve our purposes. So that we can continue to live in the life of darkness that we want. That's what makes us blind. And people that are blind religiously uses religious law and religious scriptures to, to create a life so that it suits them and fits them. And they judge from that place. And they judge not because they're seeking righteousness or seeking truth, but because they're trying to preserve what they, how they want to live and how they want others to live. That's the judgment Jesus is talking about. He says... That's blindness. Now, it's not only religious people do that. Let me tell you, we use cultural law to judge. And we get blinded by our cultural norms and cultural 
inheritance and we, we, we judge with our culture. We judge with, with legal positions. We, we, we judge with social uh, dynamics. There's so many different ways that people, that people use things to force other people to fit into what they believe is the right way to do things because it suits their purposes. And that's the blindness Jesus is talking about. He's saying this whole lot is blind. They've become blinded in their own sin. And because they're blinded in their own sin, they are just become so harsh and unkind and are prepared to destroy somebody. And this is the part where Jesus identifies with this woman. Where this, John tells us this particular story in a way to say what this woman is going through is what Jesus is going through. Because remember, they were charging Jesus in exactly the same way with false charges. They were bringing charges against Jesus. Again, the law said, if you want to charge somebody, you have to have two witnesses. If you want to make a claim about something, you have to have two witnesses. The Pharisee says to Jesus, you in, in, um, in, uh, in John 8 verse 58. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with my notes. But there's a portion where you'll read where, where, John, where they charge Jesus and they say, where's your second witness? You are testifying about yourself that you are the Son of God. Where's your second witness? And Jesus says, my Father is my second witness. Me as the Son of God is the first witness and God the Father is the second witness. But the Pharisees didn't want to accept that. You see, so they were holding Jesus to a standard because the law says two witnesses. But they didn't want to do that standard because they were bending and abusing the law of God for their own purposes. And so exactly what they were doing with the woman, they were doing with Jesus. So Jesus had more in common with that woman at that moment than he had with all the religious establishment because he was just like her. He was the one that was being dra dragged before the crowd and he was the one that they wanted to stone and, and kill. But the difference between him and the woman was, and that's where Jesus, when he speaks to this woman, there's a tenderness in his heart. He rescues her as a skilled lawyer. He rescues her from her condemnation, from her being condemned, from being stoned. But no one will be there to rescue him. That not long from then, he was going to find himself with his accusers lined up against him. Breaking the laws, using the law in their own blindness for their own purposes. Refusing to see him as the light of the world. The one that brings truth on everything. Refusing to see him. And they were going to bend the law and make it fit their purposes until they can crucify him. And there will be no one that can save him because he has to go through this. He had to. He chose, remember, to go through. But like, unlike the woman, there's no light for him. He will go into the darkness of death. And be killed by their blindness. And so in that moment there's this tenderness that comes in the scripture as Jesus deals with her. Where in her he sees himself. He sees himself on the other side of the accusers. And being unjustly treated. And ultimately being killed. And being crucified by them. And that's what's going to happen. Fantastic that Jesus could help her. But there would be no salvation from the cross for him but we know it's because so that there would be salvation for us through the cross that he died on and that's this beautiful thing that jesus is communicating that john captures for us so let me apply that as i 
as I want to bring this to an end. There's a second story that affirms this, but I don't have time to deal with it today. In John 9, the man born blind that was healed by Jesus. It reaffirms the same story. Jesus identifies with that man and heals him and uses him to talk about blindness and how to cure blindness. There's this amazing verse in, John, in, in Isaiah 50 verse 11. It says the following, But watch out, you who live in your own light and warm yourselves by your own fires. This is the reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in great torment. I want to ask you, what are the fires you live by? These people, these religious people in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, at least I remember that word now, these people at the Feast of Tabernacles were warming themselves by the fire and the light of their religiosity, of the law, refusing to kill that light, to turn to the light that is the light of the world, which is Jesus. They were so comfortable in their little bit of light. They didn't want to lose that and refused to turn to Jesus, who is the light of the world. We, we do the same, don't we? We all have things in our lives that we use to warm ourselves with, to create for us a, a sense of hope and peace and provision and sustenance in life. But what Jesus says here, basically, is you've got to kill that fire. And the prophet says, you've got to kill that fire and come into the darkness. Only when you step into the darkness, that pitch black darkness, where you cannot see anything, where you come to the full terms of your own darkness and blindness, will you look for the light, who is the light of the world, which is Jesus. If you stay within the warmth and the glow of these lights of this world and of the fires of this world, these man-made lights, you'll never recognize how blind you are to the light of the world. That's why Jesus draws people out. And that's why repentance is the first step towards salvation. It's to repent, is to say, Lord, I recognize how I have been consuming, if I bring it back to last week's message of the bread of life, how I've been consuming the things of this world and letting that sustain me. I now recognize none of that will feed me, sustain me. I now recognize that the light and the warmth that I've created for myself by the things of this world will ultimately destroy me. So therefore, Lord Jesus, I let all those lights die. I kill all those lights. I repent from that. I turn away from that. I turn away from that light and I turn towards the darkness of not knowing because in that your light will shine. Remember the, 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 the pillar of fire at night that was in the darkness that guided the Israelites. Our pillar of fire is Jesus. Far greater, far better, far more. That shines in the dark place. That says, I will shine on you. I will not only bring light into your world, but I will shine and heal your blindness. That you will begin to see what is the truth. What is the truth about life. The compassion that is needed for life. You will see the love of God. And that will change and transform you. And you will begin to be, as Jesus later says, you are the light of the world. Also, we then begin to carry that light because the light has shined upon us. I will remind you of what C.S. Lewis said. I believe in the sun, not only because I see the sun, but by it I see everything else. Jesus is your light. But there's a challenge in this. And I know this is tough. 
Are you warming yourself by other lights? I want to ask you that today. Are you prepared to recognize your own blindness? Are there things you are holding on to? When the blind man was healed by Jesus, it came at great cost for him. He had to either accept that Jesus healed him and walk into the light of Jesus or cling to the light of his family, his culture. Because remember, when he was healed by Jesus, the Pharisees brought him to his family and said, tell us the story of this man. It's a lie. He wasn't healed. And then they asked his parents, and his parents said, no, he was born blind. And then the, the, but you must ask him yourselves, the parents, because the scripture says they were afraid of the Pharisees. And eventually this man said, I do not know what you are talking about, this man, because the Pharisees said that Jesus is a sinner. He says, I don't know what you are saying, but what I can tell you is I was blind, but now I see. And then it ends that story with these words, and he was put outside or let go. This man accepted the light of Christ at the cost of the warmth of his family, of his religion, of, of his culture, everything he had to say. There's no warmth there, but I was blind, but now I see. He found Jesus. That's why Jesus said, no man can come to me and not leave mother, father, brother behind. It's not that we hate, but we can't cling to the other things and want Jesus. So I want to pray with you today and just say, Jesus is the light of the world. He's your light. He will bring light to your world. But you've got to recognize your blindness and you've got to recognize the darkness first. And then you will receive his light. And that is done by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to see our own blindness and to understand the darkness around us. So let me pray for you for the working of the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. Father, I thank you. Thank you for this amazing portion of scripture. Thank you for your word that is so powerful that you are the light of the world, Jesus. That you are my light. But I recognize, Lord, that I do not see the light because I don't want to see the light. I, I, I'm blinded in my own darkness because I love the darkness. I love the darkness that gives me the space to do what I want to do. That gives me the place where I can, I can live out my own passions and desires in life and, and not be accountable to you. But, but I love being in the darkness and being able to, to just carry on the way I want to. But today, Lord, I want to recognize that I'm blind. And I ask you, come and heal my blindness, Lord. Come and set me free from my sin. I don't want to just live up to some law. I want to live up to being a child of God. And to, for that to happen, Holy Spirit, I ask that you will come. Right now, reveal to us how blind we are, how much we are in the darkness, so that we can step into the light. Thank you, Jesus. You are the light of the world. I was blind, but now I see. Thank you that many of us can cry and echo those words. I was blind, but now I see. But if there's anybody here today, I pray for them that has not yet received sight from you in their spiritual blindness, that today by your Holy Spirit, you will help them, convict them, and lead them towards life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you, if you feel this message is for you today and you want to say, I was blind, but now I can see, won't you just come right now and take the time and contact somebody that's available online to meet with you,
to, to pray with you and to help you to do that. If you have any other need, they're also welcome to. They just want to pray with you and help you. Jesus is the light of the world. Won't you go forth in this week also and share his light with others? We love you. Look forward to seeing you again next time. Before you go, a warm and heartfelt thank you to you, our generous community, for making it possible for us to bring change across the street, across the globe. You, as a community, have pledged a total of 4.2 million rands towards our Faith Promise Fund 2020 during a challenging season in our lives as individuals, as a community, and as a nation. In the words of Albert Einstein, the world is not dangerous because of those who do harm, but because of those who look at it and do nothing. Thank you for doing something. Every cup of kindness counts and helps change a life. If your circumstances have changed and you too would like to be part of this adventure, make your faith pledge by visiting the link below or SMS your name and pledge amount to the cell phone number that appears. If you are trusting the Lord for healing or breakthrough, we have teams available to pray with you. Use the link or screen to join the virtual prayer room after the morning service or every Monday evening at seven. Our worship and prayer evenings continue online. So join us every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. on Facebook, YouTube, or church online via our website. That's all from me. May you enter the week with clear guidance from Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Back there.